0: This is uh, God's word to you because he is your savior. Now, there's a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision in action. That's the decision to, uh, to kill Jesus, to crucify him. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for the hope of Easter. We pray for your Holy Spirit now to be our teacher. Uh, Teach us about uh, the wonder of this passage. Help us to understand it. And I pray uh, for those who are here that this might be a new knowledge to them of the risen Jesus. I pray that your spirit uh, would uh, make these things clear of um, of the wonder and the power of your work. And for those of us um, who have heard this story many times before, we pray that you would make it fresh and give uh, joy-giving, life-giving, and, uh, and fill it with purpose in our hearts now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we are... This morning, we're looking at a fairly classic Easter passage. You know, the women, they're going early in the morning, and they have spices for the body of Jesus, and there's an empty tomb. And, you know, I I think for many people, when we come to Easter, and we ask, what is the significance of this story about uh, Jesus rising from the dead? Many people say, you know, the, the main thing is that this story shows that life goes on beyond death. There's survival. Our soul passes, uh, it, it remains in existence after uh, death happens. And certainly, you know, the Bible says that that's true. You know, Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, he said to the thief who was right next to him, uh, surely I tell you today you'll be with me in paradise. But one of the things <laughs> that's interesting about this passage is that it doesn't talk anywhere about Jesus' soul. <laughs> There's nothing about what's happening in Jesus' soul. Almost emphatically, Luke is saying, This is a story about what happened to Jesus' body after he died. I don't know if you heard me emphasize that. In verse 52, it says, This man, Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then in verse 55, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then in verse 3, They went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And what Luke is wanting to insist upon is that this is not a story about Jesus' soul. This is a story about Jesus' body. What happened to Jesus' body after he died? And what's very interesting is you read about Jesus' disciples after he was raised and they go out into the uh, to the Mediterranean world and the Roman Empire and they're going to cities and they're talking about Jesus and what he was doing. You know, they didn't talk about things about... You know, they'd found inner peace, or that they'd learned to love people better, or uh, they they've found a relationship with God. That's not what they were talking about. <laughs> what they were talking about was that Jesus' body had been raised from the dead. That was the good news, the thing that they were so excited about. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that's odd bodies rising from the dead, bones that were dead are now walking around and talking. And that's the big thing about their spiritual life is that Jesus was dead and now his body is alive. It's strange. And yet what I want to suggest this morning is that it's just the right kind of oddity. It is just the right kind of strange thing uh, that we need. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. G.K. Chesterton was a, an author in England in the first part of the 20th century when you know, largely Western Europe was abandoning Christianity and saying Christianity is not something that a modern person can believe in. And he wrote this book called Orthodoxy about his journey of why he uh, embraced Christianity in the midst of a modern world. He was an intellectual. Why did he embrace Christianity? And he, tells, uh, and he says that the reason is that the world seems to be mostly logical, you know, the world is about 99% logical, but there is a 1% to the world that's illogical. And if you're really going to understand the world, you need, to, uh, you need to get the 1%. And so he says, you know, if you imagine that there was, a, there was a race of people that lived on the moon. And they had a telescope, and they were kind of looking down at humans. And they were looking through their telescope, and they noticed that a human is actually kind of two humans. You know, they've got one, an arm on this side and then a matching arm on this side. And then they got a matching leg here, and a matching leg, and a matching eye, and a matching eye, and matching ears. And the whole thing's symmetrical. Even things that you have one of. You know, the mouth, there's matching teeth inside, massing nostrils. And he says, you know, if this was a logical group of moon men, and you told one of these logical moon men, you know, uh, it turns out that the humans, they have a heart on the left side. The logical moon man would say, well, there's probably a heart on the right side. And it would turn out that they'd be dead wrong. Because the human body is mostly logical. It's mostly symmetrical. But when you get to the heart, when you get to the thing that is pumping life into everything else, you find an oddity. You find something that you didn't expect, something strange. This is precisely what the resurrection is. Christians believe in a logical world. They believe in a rational world. But they say that if you're going to make sense of the world, you have to get this one 1% illogical, illogical, illogicality, whatever you say, this one illogical thing that pumps life into everything. And this is, that's what the resurrection is. It's the thing that pumps life and color and love and joy into the rest of the Christian life. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this passage. This passage is juicy, loaded uh, with all kinds of goodness, and it shows us both the truth of the resurrection and how odd it is. And uh, how I want to show you that is by really uh, pointing out four qualities of the resurrection that come out in this passage, and they all start with P. You know, I usually don't use alliteration, but you know, it's Easter, it's sunny out, so they all start with P. Okay, Uh, it's happy. Uh, The resurrection we find was perplexing; it was not what the disciples expected. The resurrection was predicted. By Jesus the resurrection was a public event and lastly the resurrection was productive okay it was like produce okay it was fruitful it was fertile so those are the four things perplexing predicted public and productive so first we see in this passage that uh, the resurrection was a perplexing event uh, and what um well, the first thing that we see really in this passage is that, that Jesus' disciples, when they found that Jesus' body was gone from the tomb, that was actually surprising to them. And you see that in verse 2 where it says that these women, uh, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And then it says in verse 4, they were perplexed about this. And then uh, and after that, uh, you know, when the women, they they talked, have this conversation with these angels And then they go and they tell the apostles and they say, hey, it turns out Jesus' body's gone. He's risen from the dead. And it it says about the apostles in verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe him. No one expected Jesus' body to rise from the dead. Um, It didn't fit into their categories. And, you know, it's very common in our day. You know, we think modern people, we think we're very smart. And we were the first smart people in the history of the world. And so back then we thought, you know, they believed in people rising from the dead. And so that's why they thought that things like this happened. They believed in a magical world. And so that's why they told the story about Jesus rising from the dead is, is they believed in, in dead people rising from the dead. Not true at all. Actually, ancient historians say that, that um, Jesus rising from the dead was as startling to them as it would be to us. And for different reasons, though. Because really the main two worldviews in the uh, the ancient world, you had the Greek worldview, which said that, uh, you know, we're basically a soul and a body put together, but uh, the body is evil. And your goal is to get free from the cage of your body. And, you know, they would never say Jesus' body rising from the dead would be a good thing. They would say that it's a bad thing. You want to get rid of the body. It's full of all its passions and lusts and desires. Get rid of the body. So they they would never have uh, guessed that... uh, that Jesus' body would have risen from the dead. And the same is for Jews. You know, Jews believed in resurrection, but they believed at the end of history, all of God's people's bodies were going to be raised together. And so that one guy in the middle of history would have been raised, they, no one anywhere in any writing ever predicted anything like that. This is something that was brand new and was uh, perplexing to them. And the question for us is, are, uh, is God allowed to perplex us? Is God allowed to, in your mind, whoever God is, is he allowed to do something that you wouldn't expect? Is he allowed to do the 1% that is illogical? Is that a category for you? And, uh, and I think that um, we have to believe that if there is a God in the world, if there is a God who's wise, who's powerful, who's loving, and he did something, the thing that he was going to do was going to be something that you, didn't, you weren't planning on. <laughs> You would expect that it would be something innovative, something creative, something different than what you would, have, than your category and your description of God. Or otherwise, God's no different than you. God's no bigger or better than you. And what we see uh, in the Bible, see, most of us, we come to the Bible, and what we're expecting to find from the Bible is little spiritual maxims that, you know, that the Bible should be kind of a, a coffee table kind of book that you flip open. And it says a pithy little statement about how to live your life better. And what we find in the Bible is it doesn't tell us primarily how, what we should do, but it tells us what God has done. The message of the Bible is not so much about what we do, but what God has done for us and what God did. But one of the odd things is he raised Jesus' body from the dead. Now, um, that leads us to the second thing, second quality of the resurrection is not just that it was perplexing, that it was strange, that it was an oddity, but that it was predicted. Um, and uh, you see that here in verse 4. you know, These women, they come, they find the tombs empty, they're like, what's going on? And they meet these angels, and it says in verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they, fright, uh, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And uh, what they're saying is, they're referring to Luke chapter 9, when Luke was still in Galilee, he told all his disciples, listen, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to rise on the third day. He was predicting what was going to happen. And of course, we could say, well, you know, that'd be, that's very easy for whoever's writing this to, after the fact, kind of insert that little statement in Jesus' mouth, uh, you know, so that it would give more veracity to this resurrection account. But the fact is that you also have that the Old Testament has many statements about that the hope when God finally acts, there are these little hints, these little whispers throughout the Old Testament that are saying that when God finally acts in the world, it's going to look like resurrection, new life. That's what it's going to look like. And, uh, you know, oftentimes when we think of the Bible kind of giving predictions and, you know, telling the future, we kind of, I don't know if you know who Nostradamus is. That's kind of what we think of as some guy who's predicting future events that are going to happen. And in some ways, that's kind of what the Bible is doing. But there's another way to really think of, of what the Bible is doing with predictions, more in terms of that the Bible is telling a story. And you know that any good author, when they're writing a story, uh, up until the climactic moment, they're giving you little hints of what's going to happen. You know, there was this movie uh, about 10 years ago that came out, it was called Signs, it had Mel Gibson in it, it was about aliens that had come to earth and they were killing everyone or eating everyone or something like that and it's about this family and uh, throughout the story it turns out that you learn about each character in the family and there's the girl the the youngest daughter who always fills up glasses of water and then drinks just a little bit and then leaves the glass around the house and because she says that the water tastes bad and so the, the house always has glasses of water sprinkled you know, on tables and everywhere. And then you learn that the older brother, he was kind of a wash-up baseball player, and he had this bat hanging on the wall when he hit some home run or something like that. So the whole story's playing out, and then you come to the climactic moment where an alien's actually attacking their house. And it turns out that <laughs> these aliens are allergic to water or something. You get water on them and they die, right? Right? And here it is, here's the guy, he's got the baseball bat, takes it off the wall, and all the glasses of water are right there for him to hit and splash water all over the alien, and he wins, you know? And what happens, though, it's one of those stories where there's all these hints throughout the whole movie, and then at the end, they all come together. That's what resurrection is like in the Bible. That's what the predictions in the Bible are more like. It's a story that has this motif that's kind of echoing these whispers that when God acts, what it's going to look like Is new life, rising from the dead, defeating death. And actually, you know, it's not just in the Bible that's true. You look at our world, you look at the motifs in the world, and our whole world is just charged with resurrection. Every year we go through death and resurrection. He's woven it into the very fabric of the world that he's made that, you know, the plants die and then they come back up in the spring. And the, uh, you know, a seed falls, it's a dead thing into the ground and out comes new life. And, you know, even you, you you live your day, you love people, You uh, you have relationships, you go to work. And at the end of the day, you go and you lie down and you die. <laughs> and then the next morning... You get up again and you resurrect, okay? You're living out resurrection every single day, right? The motif, God God has woven it, it whispered it throughout the Bible and he's whispered it throughout creation so that you would recognize the moment when it happens. And uh, what that tells us is that we are living in a world made by a God who raises the dead. We are living in a world made by a God who raises the dead you know i 'll tell you i I became a Christian as a teenager, and um, i 've shared with most of you some of my story i was a, a I had dropped out of high school and i 'd left home and I was a very uh, head, a huge headache for my for my parents and you know I was on drugs and I left home and finally uh, one day my parents had me picked up in the middle of the night and uh, I was taken off to a little boys program in, on the island of Western Samoa, which is a little island. Uh, in the South Pacific, and I was spent a year and a half in a boys program there. And I became a Christian there. I found a Bible. And I started reading it. I'd never been to church. I knew nothing about Jesus or anything, and the Bible just changed my life. And my parents were getting these letters from me, and, you know, they're kind of like, is this real? What's really happened? They heard that I'd become a Christian, and uh, and I was I was saying I want to be friends with them again. I don't want to treat them the way I've been treating them. And so they said, wow, you know, my parents hadn't been to church in probably decades. And so they said, well, we better go to church. It was Easter. I was in Western Samoa. Our kids become a Christian. Let's go to Easter. They go to some little church down the street from their house. And they, they start hearing about this. What God does is he raises the dead. And it just hits them. This is what God's doing in my son's life. My son was, my, our son was dead. And they just start weeping. And they hear that he's been raised. There's new life coming out of him. There's a new power that's alive in him. This is a God who raises the dead. And what it means to be a Christian is when we say we join ourselves to Jesus by faith and say, I believe uh, in Jesus. I want to be joined to him by faith. I trust in him. The promise of a Christian is that what God did for Jesus on Easter morning in this passage, when he raised his body from the dead, he healed his humanity. He will do for us when Christ comes again. That sounds odd. It sounds obscure. It sounds crazy. And yet it's the 1% oddity that God, this is the God of the Bible, is the God who raises the dead. And that's the offer of the gospel. Now, if someone's, you know, if you're a rational kind of person, you say, okay, I I guess if God could do that for Jesus, raise his body from the dead, I suppose he could do that for me as well. But how am I going to, how do I really know that That happened, that Jesus' body rose from the dead. I mean, is this kind of a blind faith, wishful thinking uh, thing that we just got to take on faith? Is there any way that I can really know that that happened? And the answer is actually yes. And this leads to the third uh, quality of the resurrection we see. It's it's not just perplexing. It was predicted. um, But it was also a public event. It was public. It was not something that happened in private. And this is terribly important because, you know, when you look at the majority of kind of religions in the world and, you know, spiritual leaders are, are founders of religious faith, largely what happens is there's one person who had a spiritual encounter with God or a revelation that God gave them a private revelation of this is who I am, this is what I want people to do. So you look at, you know, Joseph Smith or something, the Mormons. And Joseph Smith, he had, you know, there was an angel who told them where there are these uh, gold, plates that had written on the Book of Mormon, and he was the only one who could uh, could translate them and understand them. It was a private revelation. You know, same with Islam. Muhammad had a private revelation that, that was unique to him. The Bible's simply not that way. The central teaching of the Bible that Jesus' body was raised from the dead was something that happened in public. And um, the Bible says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he went and he talked with hundreds of people. You know, there were people he went and had dinner with, and he sat down with them. And what's interesting about this this document that we're just reading right now, the Gospel of Luke, Luke says at the beginning, what I was doing when I was writing this is I went and I talked to the eyewitnesses, and I, I put together what they said happened. And one of the ways that we know that he's doing this, actually, uh, ancient historians see that there's a convention that he's using where he puts people's names in the account. So you know whose eyewitness he's recording for you. So, uh, for example, in this passage, actually, the passage just before what I read to you, when Jesus is dying on the cross, this is what it says. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So he talks about this group of women, and they were watching. A watching is kind of an eyewitness language. And then it says in verse 55 of the passage we're looking at, the women who had come, from hi, uh, come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Right? Here's the women again. They saw the, body, they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then lastly in verse 10 it says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna. And Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. Now, these are, this is terribly important. <laughs> because uh, on the one hand, what Luke is saying is that what happened to Jesus' body, this was not something that happened in private. Here's, here's three women, and when I'm writing this, they're still alive. The reason I'm putting their name in, them, in this passage is so you can go ask them. If you have questions. But the other thing, so it was a public event. But the other thing that's very interesting is that these are women. And they, don't get me wrong, I, <laughs> I would trust a woman. But in their day, in, in the Roman Empire, a woman's eyewitness uh, testimony was not credible in court. No one would believe the account of a woman. If this was a fabrication... If, if this was a bunch of Christians who were saying, you know, I'm going to make up an, a story about Jesus rising from the dead, there's no way that they would have had women be the primary official eyewitnesses. And yet here Luke says the women were at the cross, they saw Jesus die on the cross, they saw his body put in the tomb, and now they saw him, uh, re, uh, that the tomb was empty. And then they, then they went and uh, met the angel. And, wh- and the only possible reason that that would happen is because this is a true event. And uh, that the official witnesses of the early church, this, this is a new organization that is starting, they're founding the, the fish, official eyewitness on the testimony of these dear women who were there, who were following him and wouldn't leave his side. And uh, what that tells us is that these are true events. Um, and that God had chosen these women to be his official witnesses. And you know what they did? They went and they told the apostles, and look at what it says in verse, uh, in verse 11 there, uh, that uh, these words seemed to, that, to the apostles an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But God didn't regard the women that way. There's something happening here that is very countercultural that says this is a public event. This is not a fabrication. And, um, and so what that means is that this is an invitation for us to believe, even as rational people is to still believe uh, in a logical world, and yet here is an oddity. Now, now I've said a lot. I have one more point. And, uh, because there's a question of, okay, okay, Jesus' body rose from the dead. Um, what does it do to us? Does it create anything? Does it change the world at all? Does it change my life at all, that Jesus' body rose from the dead? And that's the last thing that I want to I observe. The, the quality of the resurrection is lastly... That it was productive. And I, I mean that word like produce, you know, that is fruitful. Is, it bare fruit, it, it, it went beyond itself. And uh, actually, you know, in, uh, in the last century, uh, there's been a shift in kind of scientific knowledge of how do you know that something is true? It's not just that you can verify it by, by tests and, you know, experiments and things like that. One of the things that you know, one of the ways that you know that something is true is that it produces more knowledge. So, you know, you know atomic theory or, or genetics, these have been areas that have been very fruitful. They're fertile knowledge. They go beyond themselves. And what you see happening in this passage is as Peter goes to the tomb, it says in verse 12, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter went and he saw that Jesus' body is raised. And he begins to it begins to bury itself in him and he begins to meditate on it. And it begins to kind of he begins to ruminate on what does this mean? What is the significance that God raised this man's body from the dead? And I'll tell you that Christians have been doing this for centuries. And let me just give you a couple examples of an impact that something as odd as the resurrection has had on our culture. First of all, the modern hospital. We know uh, historians say that, that the hospital was invented by Christians. And the reason that Christians invented the hospital is because they believed that the body was good, that God liked healing bodies. At the center of their whole faith was God raised a body from the dead. And whereas so many other cultures said that the body was bad, Christians thought that the body was good. And as they began to meditate on the resurrection, what did it create? It created hospitals. And they said, why don't we heal bodies? We should study bodies. We should invest in bodies. And you see that it's productive. It goes beyond itself, and it creates things like hospitals. This is actually the same as true as science. One of the big historical questions in the history of the world is, why did science emerge in Western Europe in, in the Christian nations? Why didn't China come up with, you know, China had alchemy and, you know, gunpowder and all kinds of chemical things that they were looking into, but they never invented science. Islam had uh, Greek knowledge way before the Christian world did. And they never came up with science. And even the Greek world, the, the ancient Greeks, why didn't they come up with science? The reason that Christians came up with science was because they believed that the physical world was a good thing made by God. And that was rooted in the idea of the resurrection, that God doesn't want our souls to just go off to heaven when we die. He wants to raise our bodies because physical things are good. And what the resurrection does is when you begin to believe in it, it begins to, it's fertile ground. It begins to lead to all kinds of other knowledge. And that's not just true of cultural things. That's true of our personal life too. You know, there's a, uh, there's a guy named Huston Smith who is a, he's a professor of comparative religion. He's not a Christian. He wrote a book called, Uh, uh, the religions of man where he goes through all the religions of the world and in his last chapter he talks about Christianity and what he says is Christianity is strange because uh, the early Christians were captured uh, not by new you know uh, moral teachings that Jesus had that he told you to love people you know the Old Testament had said that you should love people all the other religions had said you should love people the thing that captured them was that Jesus was alive he wasn't dead And what Huston Smith, not a Christian, says was so compelling about Christians was that they were filled with love and joy. Somehow this message that God had raised Jesus from the dead had brought new life, buried itself in them, and and it began to produce joy and love. And it transformed them. And they went out in the world and they just sent the Roman Empire on fire with, with joy and love and service and care. That's what happens when we believe in this. So this morning, this is an invitation to you. Have you found that joy? Has this captured you that God did not leave Jesus' body dead, but he raised it? And he promises that if we are connected to Jesus to do the same for us, has that produced that kind of joy and love in you? And the invitation for Easter and of this passage is for you to believe. Jesus invites you to come and to find that, that it may bear fruit in your life that you might find that life and you might find that hope and that it would be that odd heart that's off-center, that's pumping life and joy and love into everything else. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for this word and the hope of the resurrection. Challenge our minds and would it live in us, would it live in us as a church and would it bear fruit? And we, we'd be in awe and filled with joy because of it, we ask in Jesus' name.